Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is a show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And here we're discussing the film, Deborah. And joining us today is our special guest, Noga Pinwelli. So welcome, Noga. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Noga. Hey guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> we're very excited to talk to you today. So can you get started with telling us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment business? Yes. Uh, I'm a writer-director. And then, sorry, I have to make a joke, so I'll say I also like to worry and cry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what kind of projects have you worked on? Uh, I work primarily in features, you know, movie films, uh, less in TV, trying to do that. I heard TV is is a thing that uh, has really taken off lately. So well, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of this thing, Uh, but no, but mostly working in features, both live action and uh, more recently animation as well, which is like a lifelong dream. So very happy with that. Yeah. and across the board between my own projects uh, that come from my head to, you know, hired hand projects, which is more like how you make a living. Yeah, totally. More standard way. So yeah, every, a little bit of everything. Awesome. Can you tell us a little about your path for this career, like maybe educational background, stuff you did on your own or in school that helped get you to where you are today? For sure. A lot of my life and career were all sort of influenced by my family and specifically my dad was um, a computer science professor. So that meant it's a little bit like being an army brat. It's an (laughs) academic brat. So we traveled all over the world with him from a young age, which certainly exposed me to, you know, American culture and living in America and kind of like slowly, you know, inching my way from Israel to America. I'm originally from Israel in terms of wanting to work here, falling in love with American movies uh, books, everything, and just like really want, wanting to be part of that industry. And uh, the sort of most important thing that happened is my dad got a job at NYU uh, and I was in, still in Israel at the time going to like a small animation school. And he basically, they sat me down and they said, listen, your school costs a lot of money. Why don't you come study at NYU for free? Because there's a faculty, you know. Oh, this awesome. Now. Yeah. Cool. Come study at this like, you know, really prestigious, expensive yeah. <laughs> No big deal. Like, Fine, you know, like twist my arm. I will. I guess. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll do it if I get accepted, and I did. Um, and and sort of. So that was like a huge, you know, both life and career yeah. moment of moving permanently to America. Uh, you know, getting such a great education at NYU. It was the um, film and TV track, which was very hands-on. So it wasn't a screenwriting track nor uh, a purely academic track. It's like they throw you, you know, it's the Scorsese always talks about it. You know, here's a 16 millimeter black and white camera, go uh, write, direct, shoot, write (laughs) your own film and then just edit it. And and I'm going to age myself. When I was at NYU, we still did... um, 60 millimeter film. Yeah, okay. totally. so, uh, I don't know if you remember these machines called Steinbecks, uh, where you go and you're in a booth with this giant like refrigerator yeah. size machine. You got a razor blade in one hand <laughs> and a tape in the other, and you're there for 12 hours. And your goal is not to use that razor blade on yourself. <laughs> you're cutting, you know the film, uh, which we did. Nobody went crazy. Uh, luckily, at least not you know physically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and what an education and you really learn, I like to say you learn all the things that you're not good at so that by the time you come out of NYU, hopefully there's one or two tracks where you're like, oh, now I know what I can do. And for me, it was like, oh, I, I am not very good at producing. 
I am terrible at editing, uh, <laughs> but this writing thing is actually pretty good. And this directing thing is pretty okay. Yeah. So you know, let's get out there and try to make that a reality. Uh, and then of course you graduate and Spielberg doesn't call you. <laughs> And then like, I don't understand. I did so well at school. Yeah. Like what is happening? Why am I not, you know, working with JJ Abrams yet? Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, I did the classic thing where you move to LA with two suitcases and zero connections and <laughs> you get your first scrappy job and then you get your second and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah. So that was the beginning. Awesome. That's very cool. Um, so since then you have, you've worked on, um, we're going to talk about your movie, Deborah, but you've also worked on the movie Meet Cute, which came out recently. So I don't know if you want to talk about any of your recent projects. Sure. Um, so yeah, the ones that, uh, you know, are I'm most known for at this point are the two movies that came out like right. literally within a month of each other in the past three months. <laughs> Both time travel movies, uh, very much not interested in being pigeonholed as the yeah, time yeah, yeah. Sure. And if somebody's like, oh, I bet your drawer is filled with time travel scripts. No, those were the only two. I have 50 others that are not about time travel. Yeah. So I swear there's more to me than that. Even though there's nothing wrong and I love the genre and yeah. I would be happy, you know, writing that for the rest of my life. But just to be clear, it's, yeah. it's clear that that's what went first in a sense, that, mm-hmm. that was the movies that got produced first. But yeah, so both of those are in the sci-fi space. Um, other things that I write are mostly in the sci-fi fantasy, okay. you know, surrealism space. I always write characters with very kind of universal themes and situations that yeah. we can all instantly recognize, but then the world is slightly elevated, slightly genre, mm-hmm. so that we're approaching, you know, the familiar universal sort of themes and feelings through a little bit of a, a strange lens or a new right. lens, which really create something interesting. So that's what I do. I, you know, spec, which means like I write my own scripts. That's that was me cute and that was Deborah. You know, and I don't know if you want me to talk sort of a little bit about the jargon of it all, but sort of specking is when nobody has hired you yeah. or given you an idea, you just do it on your own and you hope that you can sell it. <laughs> um, so that's sort of, and that's my ideal way of working. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it takes a really long time to get to pay your bills that way. So the <laughs> yeah, effort, yeah. you know, track for writers, especially feature writers like me, as we do assignments and we work for studios and we're more like hired hands. So that's the whole process of, um, you know, your agents or someone tells you about a studio is hiring, um, okay. looking for a writer for a project, then 50 people pitch for it. I'm right. among them. If I'm lucky, I win it. Uh, and if I win it, I get to write it and I get paid for it. So I'm doing a bit of that as well. Awesome. Most of my stuff I can't really talk about. Oh, yeah, that's sure. Yeah. Um, but I'll just say that it's been a lot in animation, which I think, uh, especially with the pandemic and there was a slight yeah. production, it's been lovely to get to work in animation. And, you know, I think as writers in live action, we're so conditioned about all the things that we cannot write, like ocean shots, yeah. uh, you know, space, it's, everything is expensive. There's so many things, kids and, and uh, animals, you know, all that stuff. That when you get to animation, suddenly you're like, oh, I can literally write anything, no matter yeah. how expensive because it's all the same. <laughs> so I think it's been incredibly liberating. That's uh, sort of what I've been up to recently. Awesome. So how do you balance, you know, working on your own projects that you're passionate about and also like doing the work for hire route um, of making sure that you have, you're able to pay your bills, obviously, but also like you're super focused on, on your own stuff. How do you balance that? I think that's a million dollar question <laughs> yeah. uh, for all writers. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is we have no control over it because you also don't have control over the timeline. Yeah. So I can say I need a job tomorrow. I can, if I'm lucky, I'll win a job, let's say in three months. And then it might not get commenced. It might not start for another year and a half, right? Wow. Maybe yeah. 
based on that happened to me. It's based on a book. Whoever holds the rights is very finicky. There's mm-hmm. a legal whatever, or you know, in the pandemic, suddenly all the lawyers at, for example, I don't know, Disney or wherever, kind of left. And, and there was just a lot, you know, there's so many factors. So right. there's a complete lack of predictability in terms of uh, making a living and, and jugg- doing that juggle. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the answer is, is an, a not a healthy one, which is <laughs> just do everything a lot all the time. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know. You try to that always have like one spec, one original idea right. of a script of yours out to the town because that takes a long time. Miku took five years, right, to make from from when I wrote it till release was I think almost five years. Um, Deborah took four years, so yeah. you always want to have like a piece of writing that is floating and hopefully you know getting attachments, getting the director, getting the actors, getting all the, the financier, everything it needs to slowly you know get up on his feet. And while that's happening, then the grind starts for you. Yeah. To, uh, pitch for those jobs and try to get those jobs and uh and you just keep once you're in it and you're on the a hamster on the on the wheel again this is not the healthy answer but you just keep running <laughs> and, and the whole time you're like next year i'll take it easier next yeah. year sure, right? you never <laughs> sure. do and i'm sure you guys talk to writers all the time much bigger and more successful than me and they'll t- more than they're more paranoid than everyone and they say i don't know if i'll work next year so i gotta stay on that hamster wheel and then uh, I assume then suddenly you're 80 and you retire. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> for now it's been working for me. And I'm, you know, we do say we're happy to be working. Mm-hmm. We're yeah. doing what we love. So mm-hmm. I can complain about it till, you know, the sun come, comes yeah. down. But, uh, how lucky are we, you know? So it's all good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And with that process of some, when something takes four or five years, even though it's arduous and, you know, like tons of work, it's got to be really rewarding when you finally see it on screen and be like, yeah. oh, yes, we made it. Like it's here. It's, it's so surreal. I can't explain it. Of course, yeah. it's incredibly exciting and fulfilling, but it's it's like it's like watching your dream come true. After yeah. Grind and hustle and tears and heartbreak. And it's it, the, the biggest word I use is surreal. It's just yeah. Surreal. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. What is your process? And you said now you're working more in animation. Um, so how do you approach these scripts when you're doing them? Like maybe a live action film versus an animation. I know you said there's a lot more freedom in the second one. Um, but does your writing process change or do you kind of follow the same steps to get started and get going? So uh, and just to clarify, in animation, I've mostly been a work for hire. So I've never uh-huh. like, put, generated my okay. own idea for animation. So okay. it is slightly a more um, formulaic process okay. for now because I'm a hired hand. Yeah. You know, you got to go through the stages of do the treatment, get approved, mm-hmm. do the script, get, a, you know, it goes stage right. by stage and you get paid for every single stage. Okay. But I will say in terms of generating my own work, it's a little more free flowing because okay. I don't have a boss. And, and, and in that case, uh, the process does vary depending on material. So sometimes it is that structured approach of let me write a 10 page treatment and beat it out and know where it's going every single step of the way. And then I'll go to draft. But most of the time it's not. And most of the time <laughs> it is like, like it's most, of the, most of the time, like this is so cliche, but but it's so true is you get pregnant with an idea yeah. and then it haunts you yeah. and it won't let you go. And, and it's not like I sit and write a treatment. I'll wake up at 4 a.m. with an idea and I'll write myself a note on my phone or I'll, I'll, I'll email myself like this incoherent like 4am thing of like what if character goes to the grocery store and then I'll look at it in the morning and not understand what it means <laughs> but, but slowly once you're like again once you fleshed out all these notes you can gather them into a document that is sort of a improvised version of a treatment uh, and then you go to draft and and I also like to keep some points of discovery in the draft I don't want to like beat it out to, to the point yeah. of you know, by the time you're sitting to write it, you're just transcribing and all the passion is gone. So I think it's nice to also leave some open ends 
and not and know where you're going, know how it ends, know how it starts, but still, you know, leave some room for experimentation. Uh, the price you pay for that is structure is yes. then not always the most sound, uh, but I think it's worth it because if if it's, there's magic in the script and magic is found a lot in the draft, people will forgive the structure and you can fix the structure, but not yeah. vice versa, right? Right. It's just really impeccable, but there's no magic, then no one's gonna take it. Yeah. So, uh, I'm a firm believer in a little bit of that improvisation on the page. Awesome. That's cool. That's very cool. So how did you make the transition from writing to directing? Great question. Um, I will say, I think as a writer, I'm very suited personality-wise to being a writer. I am suited as well to being a director, but directing is very hard for me. I, I think I'm a bit of an introvert. I like mm. being home. I like being in pajamas and, <laughs> and being in silence. I'm not, I don't go to coffee shops and I'm, I'm not one of those writers. Like I need to be alone. And I'm a control freak. And you and as a writer, you can be the most control freak. Yeah. I'm yeah, sort of totally. your babies out there in the world, and then you lose all control forever. But when, once you're still writing, you can create the world and you can tweak it till infinity, and nobody can tell you anything <laughs> different. And it's just all yours. And then directing, yes, you get to that way you do get to keep control of your script. But directing is a, is just, I like to think of it as an endless series of compromises. Even if you're the best director with unlimited funds and the best crew and cast, life happens, shit happens, yeah. you know, it's all about how you compromise, right? To make it like a good movie is, is when you compromise well. And, but it still feels in the day to day, like you're constantly, you know, it's just for a control freak. It's just so frustrating to always be like tweaking and changing and, 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 you know, killing your darlings a little bit and all that yeah. stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also being with people 24 seven, get on very little sleep uh, as a woman, trying to get everybody's respect and keep it. Yeah. Uh, dealing with problematic personalities and a lot of ego and making everybody feel heard and understood. It's exhausting, you know? Yeah, a lot <laughs> so of I, stuff. So I, uh, I think in terms of that, uh, they're completely separate professions. Um, and directing is more challenging for me. However, I think directing is incredibly magical in yeah. that you do get to witness your words come to life, protect your words and protect the way the vision mm -hmm. is executed. And to me, actors are magical and seeing actors do their magic and do their magic with your words. It's, uh, it's some of the happiest moments of my life is seeing that happen in front of me and just being like, like a kid, just being like, wow, isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Look, they're doing magic in front of me and I helped create it. So it's very naive, but it makes me feel like a kid. No, that's, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's cool that you like have that after all that work, you still have that moment of like, oh, this is just a cool thing to be able to do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so cool. yeah. I, yeah I can be upset at whatever prop, cake prop that yeah. when we buy eight more of these and now we can't shoot and all this stuff. But then give me like one magical moment of like an actor doing their thing <laughs> or even like, let's say even a cinematographer doing their thing or a production designer doing mm -hmm. their thing. You're like, wow, they brought my vision to life yeah. it was such, with such intelligence and an insight that I didn't see, I didn't see this. That happened a lot on, on Denver. I'm sorry not to jump ahead, but like, no, it's okay. That, that like I gave the overall vision, but the way heads of uh, departments interpreted uh, my, my vision and my script, they brought a, a whole new like texture and thought process that did not occur to me. Yeah. And then they make me look good. And how exciting is that? You know? Yeah. That's, awesome. that's cool. Yeah. That's what collaboration is all about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of Deborah, what was it like getting to direct the script that you wrote? Let me start by saying also that I did not intend originally to direct it. And oh, okay. uh, the producer on the project 
upon reading the script said, you're going to direct this. And she's oh, my friend. She's a great friend to this awesome. day, Megan Halpern. Shout out to Megan Halpern from the Blacklist, <laughs> uh, who, was, who was very much like, this is such an elaborate vision on the page. Only you can bring it. To, and it's so weird. And only you can bring it to life. And we want oh, you to cool. direct it. And, and to be fair, there was some pushback for me because I didn't believe in myself and mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't feel like I had permission to go and do that. And I was like, oh my God, it's such a risk. It's not what I do, I'm a writer. But then we we went and shot the short uh, to, 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 to prove that I could do it, to prove yeah. that we all liked it and that we wanted to continue and do the feature. And it went so well that we ended up um, going and making the feature too. Um, and it, it did, the short helped me a lot to, to, sh- awesome. to sh- on a small scale and um, lower yeah. stage to see that I can do it and I can do it well. Mm-hmm. So I think we all then came to the feature version a lot more confident and capable. Um, and then how was it to do it? Um, insane. Like I said, it's just like <laughs> yeah. the, the, the bad, the ugly. Uh, you go from, and again, we shot it in deep pandemic before the vaccines, which also yeah. added to the craziness of, yeah. you know, I'm a writer, but we all like work quarantined at home you know, again, in our pajamas alone. And suddenly we're mm. all bubbled in rural Utah uh, in this a little bit of a claustrophobic sort of situation. Yeah. You know, and also t- getting tested every day and spitting mm. and getting stuff up our nose every day and something <laughs> together after, yeah, after being alone for so long. Uh, but it was also very exciting. It was felt like theater. It was, yeah. you know, a contained movie. It, we got to shoot it chronologically, which was very oh, important. Cool. Oh, nice. Uh, and you know the movie, without giving too much away, does have sort of a, a slow Lord of the Lord of the Flies kind of yeah. frame of the social fabric. So mm-hmm. it's very nice to again get these actors together for the first time, and 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 the crew and everybody, and start off really civil, and yeah. then you know slowly deteriorate into madness and <laughs> both uh, in front of the camera and behind the camera. And I'll leave it at that. Uh, but I think it was very conducive to you know yeah. I think on the last day. And again, not to reveal the insane ending, but even behind the scenes, there was that manic energy. Yeah. Of, We're all losing our mind in this mansion and we need to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's an authenticity. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was fantastic. It was exhausting. It was like a marathon. We also shot six days a week. So normally wow. you shoot five days a week, but we yeah. have only one day off. So it was just a marathon and you keep going mm-hmm. and you keep going. And you know what? You make compromises, you make mistakes. There's no time. You get up the next morning and you do it again. Yeah. Uh, let's say you had an argument with someone. Doesn't matter. You're best friends now because yeah. you have to be. uh, it's a little bit like being in the army, but instead you're making art, which is weird. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. I, I'll never forget it. And again, because it was in deep quarantine in the pandemic, it made it that much more special, memorable. Yeah. You know, just being with a bunch of strangers and yeah. making art in a crazy time. Awesome. That's cool. So. What is something that, you know, most people when they think of either a writer or a director that you had to do that most people wouldn't expect uh, that that job does? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's every part is surprising. Right. Hollywood <laughs> is crazy and the rules keep changing in Hollywood. Yeah. Time. So I'm surprised on a daily basis. Maybe that's yeah. also why it's hard to answer. Is like, <laughs> like one thing that shocked me because everything shocks me. Yeah. The model, the model of business keeps changing. You know, mm-hmm. one year it's all about pitching. Just pitch your movie idea, and then you you can get paid to write it. Now, guys, pitching is dead. Everybody's sick of pitches on Zoom. The only way to sell a project is with a full script, and you need an actor attached. It uh-huh. used to be completely different. You know, it's yeah. just like. Even in terms of like genres, the things like you used to only be able, you needed to belong to a specific genre five years okay. ago and, and before that. 
And otherwise execs will be like, we'd love the script, but we don't get it. Is it sci-fi or the comedy? Like it can't be both. Right. Uh, and now, you know, after the get outs of the world and mm-hmm. more recently, let's say even the Barbarian, which yeah. which was a genre mashup, mashup of its own, totally. uh, being a horror movie that was a, a closeted comedy movie, yeah. you know, um, which I find so exciting. Mm-hmm. I think now there's a lot more fluidity uh, both in what you can sell and in what uh, the buyers are looking for and studios are looking for. They're looking for that, you know, genre m- mashup and, and that crazy unicorn. Yeah. But when they see it, they're like, but is it, can we sell it? <laughs> We're not sure. And that's like sort of the tension still between get us the next barbarian, but but we need to make sure that we can, you know, yeah. sell it. I'm shocked in Hollywood every single day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Both positively and negatively, it's full of surprises. Uh, it never ends. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> this is kind of a, a similar vein, but do you have any moments from your career um, that was just a really unbelievable moment or a favorite moment where you're like, oh, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a job? Uh, for sure. I can speak about Deborah, one from Deborah too, but if to give you a more an earlier, sort of the first time okay. I saw my work come to life thing, it was um, the Blacklist. Um, when I was just starting out, I had a script called I'm starting to suspect my teenage daughter is an alien from outer space uh, <laughs> the logline and the title very economical uh and it was doing <laughs> it was doing well around town but again it was one of those it was 2016 and okay. studios were like but it's a comedy but it's but uh, I don't understand but it's sci-fi like it was one of those and so nobody wanted to take a chance on it yeah so I put it on the blacklist website and it did really well there and started getting, you know, you got those eights and nines and then it just keeps going and keeps going until it was like very prominently, like I think number one comedy on the side or whatever. Wow. And um, and that's when uh, Megan Halpern, the producer of that for us, spoiler yeah. alert, uh, who works at The Blacklist, uh, contacted me and uh, basically took me out for a drink and said, we're doing live reads at The Blacklist back when they did live reads. Um, and we usually do them from the annual list, but we think your script would be right for it. Awesome. We, and we want to put up a one night only theatrical production of your script about the teenage wow. blah, 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 aliens in New York. And we're going to cast it with great actors. And at first I didn't like understand exactly what it was. And I thought it was going to be this weird thing where it's just like me and, you know, my friends and my uncle right. and <laughs> listening to like some random people you know, recite it. But then I realized that, no, this is a real thing that they do with really big cast and a really good turnout. And it was like in this really cool theater in New York in the village called the Cherry Lane Theater. And they cast, they ended up casting two uh, childhood idols of mine, which are um, Parker Posey and Molly Ringwald. Oh my God. I know, I know. I was like, I was like, where are the cameras? I'm being pranked with no (laughs) exist in my life. Again, nothing produced yet, just starting out in my career. And this gift falls into my lap, thanks to the Blacklist uh, and Megan Halpern with amazing taste. Cannot thank them enough. And just to go, that was one of my favorite nights of my career is to go, and again, it's that moment that every writer remembers of the first time you see actors and such actors bring your work to life and you're in a theater with all of your friends and loved ones and they're laughing their asses off, (laughs) which makes the performance feel good, which makes the audience laugh. Like it was just like such a beautiful vibe uh, in that theater um, and just getting to hang with Parker Posey yeah. and Molly Ringwald. And I, I was supposed to direct them a little between rehearsal and when we went live. And I was like, I'm not, I can't direct them. <laughs> they, they, I don't, there's what nothing do I tell them? that they don't know. Uh, but yeah, I was completely starstruck and just like sitting there uh, grinning from ear to ear. And I just will never remember that. And then I'll never forget that, like that just 
just yeah, seeing such great performers uh, say the words that you came up yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Wow, that's um, amazing. Really quick, can you just tell um, listeners what the blacklist is? Yes, I'm go- I, I don't know if I'm going to do it in the most like technically correct. Oh, that's okay. Way, but um, the blacklist it started out as an annual survey of the best and most loved unproduced scripts in Hollywood. Okay. It was started by Franklin Leonard, who used to be an exec, uh, a studio exec. And he started tabulating and collecting and like doing a survey with all the execs around town. Hey, what are your favorite scripts that uh, haven't been produced? And it became a really useful tool for the industry to be like, what are the buzziest scripts that haven't gotten made? And should we try to make them? Awesome. And that has evolved into a full business uh, that again, Franklin started, uh, and now he has a group of uh, wonderful, talented execs working under him. And it includes primarily a website where any writer uh, can submit their scripts and they get read professionally and they get graded. Uh, and depending on the grade, if it's low, at least you get good feedback and you can improve yeah. and you can submit again. If your grade is high, you get more free reviews. And that's okay. sort of uh, we jokingly call it like the Ponzi scheme, <laughs> but you know, but then like the more free reviews you get, the more attention you get until, mm-hmm. you know, you can get actual results. And I'm case in point, um, you know, I think I'm a good example of how yeah. they really, really help my career. They also have a lot of other initiatives. Again, I don't want to be a blacklist advertisement. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Just, yeah. uh, but let me just say they have great um, workshops and labs. I was also part of their feature lab in 2016. Oh, cool. It was fantastic. So, um, yeah, I think they're um, a fantastic tool for writers who are starting out alongside competitions and festivals. I I really, I tell writers, submit your scripts to the blacklist. Worst case scenario, you get great feedback. Best case scenario, you get discovered. You know, Uh, it's worth it. Well, Noga, that's a perfect transition for our last question before we talk more about Deborah. So that question is, what advice do you have for people who want to either get into writing, into directing, or just into the entertainment world in general? I used to say come to LA. I think now after the pandemic, uh, it's a little more fluid. You don't have to be here, obviously. But um, my number one advice is find other writers and form a community around you. I think the biggest mistakes that young writers make is they're like, I need a manager, I need an agent, I need a producer, I need an actor. No, you need you need other writers. Yeah. Because first of all, you need a writers group. Period. Um, and it should be with people on your level professionally, with a who are writing not necessarily the same genre, but that you respect their taste and they respect yours, so that you can Mm -hmm. get notes. They will help elevate your craft, and you will help elevate theirs. And throughout that, you will have a community and you won't feel alone anymore. Um, And other writers will also help you in the business in terms of advice. Um, Maybe you have a shitty manager. Maybe you're stuck on a project that is a dead-end project where you feel all alone and you feel like it's better than nothing, so I'll just suffer silently alone. Uh, And having a writer community to be like, hey, you don't have to do that. This is actually, you know, against WJ rules or this is actually not ethical and actually you could be doing XYZ instead. And, you know, like just to have someone having your back because writers get exploited a lot in this industry and they do so because they are alone. Um, So I think uh, community is power. And finally, a community of writers will help you on the business side too. And like, I think it's so, it's a lot of my jobs came from other writers, not from, you know, my reps are great. My agents and managers are fantastic, but a lot of opportunities do just come from other writers through just the, 
word of mouth. Hey, I just pitched on this thing, but I didn't get it. Maybe you should try. <laughs> or I just met this manager. He's not for me. I think you'd actually get along with him. Do you want an intro email? Like, you know, so I think yeah. between the business and the camaraderie and the emotional support, that's my number one advice. Form a community around you. And then again, if you can't come to LA, don't come to LA, do it online. Uh, I was going to say screenwriter, screenwriting Twitter is a great place to yeah. be. But now that, yeah. you know, Elon, uh, who yeah. knows what will happen, but I'm sure uh, the writer community is so robust, they will mm -hmm. find their home. If not, yes. that'll be Slack or it'll be Instagram or whatever. Um, yeah, have other people beside you. Don't be alone. Let's get to our featured film. Taylor discussing the 2022 sci-fi dark comedy, Deborah. It was written and directed by our guest, Noga Pinwelly. And it stars Sophia Bush, Deborah Ann Wool, Kevin Bigley, Scott Michael Foster, Arjun Gupta, Sierra Renee, Michael Waller, and Michelle Wong. So Susan, before we get into it, can you give us a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yeah, I'll give it just a really quick breakdown of the initial plot. So um, it starts at an engagement, a weekend long engagement party. It's this core group of friends from high school who are now all in their 30s. And then like the significant others and other friends that they've kind of pulled in over the years. And they're all spending a whole weekend together in this house and they're celebrating the engagement of Ada and Al. So it's about their engagement. It's also about all the relationships between these people and going back into their high school patterns of behavior when they're around each other. But then there's this other factor of this AI device named Deborah, who can allow you to go back in time <laughs> for whatever amount of time. Up, up to 48 hours. Yeah, up to 48 hours. That's right. All these things really mesh together and start snowballing, um, but I don't want to ruin too much of the film. But since we have the director and writer here, okay, I will let you kind of tell us a little bit more about what it was like making it. For sure. I wrote it before COVID. The idea was just to write something that was contained so that it would be cheap enough to film on a small budget. Right. But then when, you know, COVID rolled around, we all looked at each other like, oh, this is actually perfect. We can go make it. Yeah, right totally. Uh, and we had fantastic financiers called Chicago Media Angels, and they told us, "Come to Utah. We have, you know, a few houses we would let we would we would awesome. let you use." So we all drove from LA to Utah. You couldn't fly; it was pre-vaccines. Mm -hmm. We all drove for ten hours, uh, cast and crew, and trucks full mm -hmm. of equipment and trunks full of wine because Utah is yep. also dry. <laughs> so yep. we brought like eighty bottles of wine and we ran out of them in one week. And then we oh, no. forced to. I don't know. I think somebody a PA would drive to Wyoming to buy yeah. more wine, uh, but enough about the wine. <laughs> so we all um, bubbled for six weeks, shot for three weeks, six days a week. Very intense. It felt like a play in the, in the best way for me, yeah. at least as a director. Um, yeah. Like I said, we shot chronologically. So again, it, I think it really helped the mood of we all started very mm -hmm. civil and sort of just like the plot of the movie, sort the, the you know the social contract slowly frayed, yeah. uh, and everybody went insane in the best possible way. We made all our pages every day. I think it was a very successful production. Of course, there were growing pains. Of course, there were some you know conflicts of personality and technical problems that were nobody's faults. Uh, but all that being said, I, I don't think there's a single scene we scrapped or anything. We met all our goals. I was surprised positively, again, by heads of departments bringing their own unique spins to the material and making me look good. Uh, the cast was so professional and so prepared. They made me look great. It was exhausting and wonderful, and I would do it again, uh, but after a lot of sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
I love the characters in this. And yeah. I mean, the themes of this are so relatable, mm-hmm. especially for what everyone was going through at that time. Yeah. Um, it really does feel like it, it's a reflection of society. I mean, they talk a lot about, you know, society and, and people's roles in it. And obviously all the different characters have a very different take on, on what was going on in the world um, right at that moment. But it was so fun to watch these characters sort of bounce off each other. And then when they all realize what Deborah has the power to do and watching them all abuse it in different ways was great, especially I, 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 I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah, um, there's a moment I, that I really liked where all of a sudden they can't do it anymore. And then they're like, we're stuck with our, cons- you know, the consequences of what we're doing. Uh, that's a really great moment. Yeah, and I love, so you mentioned this before that you had really relatable themes. And I think the themes in this of these high school friends coming back together every once in a while as they get older and how they change, but also their dynamics don't change and they fall back into these patterns. That's really relatable and really grounded. So when you combine that with the time travel aspect, it's so easy to buy into that as like a reality of this world because it's so grounded in those relationships. I thought that was awesome. I loved that. Just seeing them interact and just relatable too, of like getting back together with your high school friends and what that means about if your personality's changed, if it hasn't, like how you interact with each other now. Like, I just think a lot of people can relate to that theme. Oh, thank you very much. And then, you know, that was important to me. Like this movie masquerades a little bit as a movie with like an evil quote unquote evil technology that will be all humans. But you quickly realize, and I hope this is not a spoiler, that um, <laughs> that Deborah is just a MacGuffin, if you uh-huh. will, or just a metaphor, because we're all reg- we don't need Deborah because we all regress to our most basic yes. instincts and to our, you know, what we learned at home, what we learned in childhood, mm-hmm. what we learned from our family, um, and you know, all Deborah allows is she removes consequences for a little while, uh, and that sort of was the big question to me: is if you remove consequences, do we all turn into, you know, beasts? Yes. And a Lord of the Flies type situation. So I wanted to ask that on a societal level, on a friend level, and on a and and on a family level. You know, it kind of tries to hit all of those, you know, via this microcosm microcosm of seven people who are kind of archetypes for different sort of Mm -hmm. roles we see in society and in our friend groups and in our families to kind of explore all levels of of society in in that. um, Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so curious about this. So um, as the director, and this is a, a something that I've seen in other movies, so maybe they do it differently, but I'm curious how you did it, Noga, is when one character is, you know, still living a normal life, but everyone else is frozen. Right. How do you do that? Is it literally the the actor is not moving or is it you guys, you know, filming it and then splicing it together and editing later? How do you normally do that? So uh, as a backup, we had the actors freeze, but what we primarily used is a sort of a VFX thing, which okay. is, uh, and I had to be taught this, I'm the most like technologically unsavvy person you will ever meet, but it's like, uh, we call it three plates. So you, the camera is fixed, it doesn't move. Uh, it sh- you shoot it, the scene once empty with no people, okay. and then you shoot it once with the frozens, and then you shoot it once with a person moving. I see. And then in post, um, even an editor these days, I sound like such a grandma, even an editor <laughs> these days can just splice it together on Avid. You, like, yes, we did have actual VFX people clean it up and fix it for okay. us, but our wonderful editor was already able to just smush all three plays cool. together, three shots together. And then that's just like the magic of cinema. Like you can, mm-hmm. you know, just, it, it works, you know. It's very effective. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great, great. Yeah, that yeah, looks great. And, and it was insane, by the way, to shoot it because it was constantly like, 
okay, the frozen ladies, come back and sit in your chair. Now get out. Now the moving lady, come in and come out. And I, I think they were like, why are you the frozens? Why are you calling us the frozens? But uh, it, it, it all worked out. Awesome. I wrote it in 2018. Okay. So it was like the height of the Trump presidency. Yeah. yeah. And even if you're a number one Trump fan, uh, I think uh, uh, something that we all felt back then is that there are no consequences because you see mm-hmm. all these people in power uh, doing horrendous things. There's news reveals that they've done horrendous things and it does not matter. Like yeah. Trump say like, let's nuke this hurricane and everybody would be like, cool. Like it's just like nothing <laughs> yeah. for all his sexual past. Like it just felt like nothing had consequences. Mm-hmm. And he woke up in this like weird, surreal dystopia where you're like, oh, people used to go to jail. There used to be like legal consequences for things. N- not anymore. Yeah. So I think that was very much in the back of my mind of what what would society look like without consequences? And again, via this microcosm microcosm of seven people, let's explore that. If we took mm-hmm. consequences away, how how long will you be ethical and moral yeah. if no one's watching? Yeah. Right. So I think that was kind of like uh, some of the germ of the idea, but also I think from a family perspective and exploring kind of cycles of love and abuse mm-hmm. and how because that, that was another central theme of this is um the the doing something and then rewinding time and taking it back the other person forgets in their head but remembers in their heart that's yeah. what mm-hmm. it's, in yeah, this movie, really it's very much like a metaphor for um you know a, a family member or a friend hurts your feelings right, and then they right. apologize and you forgive them and you move on but in your heart you'll always carry this little scar yeah. And you might not even remember that they hurt you in your memory, but you're in your soul. There's something there that tells you this person is a little dangerous to mm-hmm. me. Uh, so kind of playing with that metaphor and what it's like uh, when we take things back, but how yeah. the cycle of abuse continues. And if someone hurts you, then you go and you hurt someone else and how we perpetuate these cycles. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we learn it at home, we grow up, we take it elsewhere, we perpetuate yeah. it elsewhere. So, you know, it, it ranges from the very personal to the very uh, societal and political. I was being very ambitious with this and trying to hit it all, you yeah. know, all in one metaphor. <laughs> uh, and hopefully some of it, you know, registers. Yeah, totally. Yeah, lands. yeah. And I really like the part about like, there's no consequences to a point, but it always catches up to you. Exactly. Like eventually something's going to happen um, and something's going to be an irreparable. So I thought that was a really powerful theme. I thought that came through really well. Yeah. Oh, great. Thank you. So as you're directing your own project, how much did it change while you were, you know, directing it? Yeah, yeah, I was very much uh, a fascist dictator of nobody can ignore. No, I, I worked with very good producers who uh, trusted my vision and didn't make me turn it into something completely different. Yeah. And the financiers, same. Um, the actors uh, also loved it as is. The actors did have small tweaks. They were minor. They were like, oh, this, like, the way this sentence is phrased feels unnatural to me. Can I do it this way instead? And I've all, I always said yes to that. And and to me, with the actors specifically, it was like, I want you to be comfortable. I don't care if this sentence gets botched or, yeah. or even uh, you, re- you remove the sentence. As long as the sentiment is there, like, I overwrite as a writer, guilty as charged, I can admit it. <laughs> so, I, you know, if you eliminate one sentence, unless it's a key sentence, I'm fine with it, as long as my overwriting gave you almost the direction of how you're supposed to be saying mm. it and what the sentiment is. If you hit that... I don't mind. There were a few sentences that that were key and crucial yeah. and I was protective of them. And then if they get, got botched, we would, you know, try it a few different times to hit it. But that was uh, few and far between. Mm-hmm. And I will say um, mm-hmm. I write very chunky monologues in my writing. 
and on almost every other project that I've worked on, uh, they've been spliced and removed, uh, which I completely understand. But on this one, uh, I got to keep them intact. Nice. And uh, I, I should, I should now, in retrospect, apologize to the cast for putting them through it. <laughs> but, um, but the thing is, a lot of them came from TV and yeah. had years of working in TV, and they were such professionals mm-hmm. that um, watching them execute these giant monologues and these huge takes—they were like five-minute-long takes—not breaking a sweat, not making mistakes, and from take to take, they would vary it up a little bit in delivery and really respond to direction well I was like how lucky am I it was just an incredible experience to not just again you're not just seeing the actors bring your words to life you're seeing them monologue five minutes of your words and thoughts (laughs) in front of you without breaking a sweat and internalizing in a way that it comes out so natural like they're actually these are their thoughts these are their feelings uh so there were a lot of like wow moments on set where actors did monologue for a long time. And I was like, wow. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's very cool. All right. Um, That seems like a good, like what you said about letting the actors tweak some things and there were some things you definitely wanted to hit. That sounds like a good quality for a director to have is that balance of like, I know my vision. I know the things that need to end up in the movie, but I'm also going to let my other kind of experts, you know, weigh in on some stuff. I think that sounds like a really good balance. Yeah, yeah. And like I said earlier, like I do think as a director, you're like, uh, you're um, conducting a series of, of negotiations and compromises. Yeah, yeah. And that's so essential because this is a collaborative medium. Mm-hmm. I'm not a fascist dictator. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and especially with your key collaborators, especially the actors, mm-hmm. they're on screen, it's their face, yeah. they're the vulnerable ones. I need to do whatever I can to make them feel comfortable. And if it's changing things or it's changing, you know, we we even had some political debates, Mm -hmm. but it's very much about, you know, giving them what they need um, to feel comfortable and do their best work. Yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. Do you have a favorite scene in the film, Noga? I like the ending a lot. Yeah. The ending is great. I don't want to spoil it again, but it is. Yeah. It's just hard. I wish we could explicitly talk about it. Uh, well, let's say uh, stunts were involved. Uh, and so that was very interesting for me. It was very physical uh, with stunts. That was such like a di- flexing a different muscle than just two characters talking yeah. in a room. Uh, it was just very um, alive and exciting, yes. yeah. uh, especially after a very play, like 80 minutes of a play and suddenly mm-hmm. something very physical. Uh, I think it was exciting and rejuvenating for everybody and just fucked up and crazy. And yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Oh, for sure. <laughs> it was crazy and also a good contrast, yeah, to the rest of the movie. Totally. But, yeah, the energy differences, yeah. Susan, do you have a favorite scene? Uh, I think I would agree with that one. Uh, if we want to talk about one more toward the beginning, I mean, this is kind of an obvious one, and it's in the trailer, but the moment when they realize what Deborah can do, and then yeah. they're immediately being obnoxious yeah, about it. super fun about it. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was another, because we had that in the short as well, yeah. and, and that was always a, one of the biggest dilemmas in the editing room, is how many loops to do. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> and, 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 through, and, and through interrogating that, you interrogate um, comedic timing as a whole. Yeah. Because you find that, like, and you know, where they do it a lot is Family Guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the beginning of Family Guy in the first few seasons, they would stretch out a joke to an uncomfortable amount of time, and you would find that you laugh, and then you stop laughing, and you're Mm -hmm. sick of it. But then if it keeps going a little bit long, and then it comes back, you start laughing again. Like, Peter falls and hurts his knee, and he's just like, moaning for like five minutes so it was very i don't know i'm not a huge i don't know why family guy but uh that popped into my head definitely in that scene it's the mm-hmm. same thing where if you do like 10 loops should we do 10 loops should we do five loops yeah 
when is it funny? When is it stopping funny? Does it start being funny again? Yeah. Or annoyed? So I think that was, I'm glad you liked it. That was very, yeah, much I liked funny. it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's certainly yeah. a standout scene. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I would say that one. And then the one I mentioned earlier of like when Deborah's like, Nope. And then, and then they're on their own. That, Again, not to spoil anything, but that was definitely like the moment of like, finally, like this is what I've been waiting for the whole movie, you know, to do. And, and it did it. So I was very happy. Oh, good. We got to ask uh, when and where is it available? Noga. Um, so it came out two days ago on VOD. Uh, you can rent it or buy it on Amazon and Apple and any, anywhere you would um, rent or buy a movie online. Um, yeah. And go, go watch it, please. Yeah. So we're very proud of it. You know, it was a labor of love. It was small and mighty and, uh, we can't wait for the world to see it. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling movie machines in honor of Deborah. We're going to see how well both of you know, films based on the machines that they feature. So Noga, you're be playing against Susan. Here are the rules. You will each have one minute on the timer, and I'm going to give you the name of a machine. You have to tell me the name of the movie that features it. If you don't know it, you can pass. Whoever gets the most correct will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? Uh, some Life in the Credits merchandise, so like a shirt or a mug or something like we'll that. We'll send you yeah. something in the mail. Stakes are high. Let's go. <laughs> Very high stakes. Super high. <laughs> All right. So, Noga, you've elected to go first. So are Ooh. you ready to play? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start the timer after I give you your first clue. So again, I'm just going to name the, the machine. You just name the movie. All right, here we go. R2-D2. Uh, Star Wars. Correct. Uh, DeLorean. Uh, Back to the Future. Correct. HAL 9000. Uh, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Correct. T-1000. Uh, Terminator? Yes. Okay. Eve. Oh crap! What was Eve from? That's so familiar. I'm gonna pass, and then I'm gonna. We'll, be we'll come back to it. When you tell me, okay. Max. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Either. Robbie the robot. Again, incredibly familiar. Um, These are hard. Yeah. Okay, so uh, we're gonna go back to Eve and Max. You don't know. I mean. Uh, I can throw like random. Yeah. You got seven seconds. Throw something out there. Uh, Wally. Yes. Okay. Ex Machina. Uh, oh, no, that is not correct. And that's, that's one a good minute. guess, though. That's, that's a really good guess. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You got five correct, though. That's a great job. Well, in, in Wally, her name's Evie, right? No, it's. I think it's just Eve. I think he pronounces it Evie. I think he says Eve. Okay. I don't know. I'll but take you got it anyway. You got it anyway. <laughs> five points. But X Machina was a good guess. That's a really good guess. Too. All, right. All right. Susan, you're up. Are you ready? She got five. You got to beat five. Yeah, well, that's a lot, actually. Yeah. Are okay. you ready? Yes. Oh, and you, if you tie, I do have a time break. Uh, okay, tie good. Because that has happened before. All right. I will start the time after your first clue. Okay. Data. Oh, wait. Star Trek? Yes. Okay. Agent Smith. The Matrix. Yes. Optimus Prime. Transformers. Yes. Johnny Five. Oh, I don't know. I, I know that, but I have no idea what movie that's from. Okay. Is it Starship Troopers? No, I'm yeah, sorry. I don't know that. A time-traveling phone booth. Doctor Who? No, that's not what we're looking for. Do you know another time-traveling time phone Time-traveling phone booth. You can pass if you want. Oh, my gosh. This is Bill and Ted's excellent. It is. <laughs> uh, Gort. 
I don't know that one. The ED-209. Pass. Okay, no problem. All right, we're going to go back. Johnny Five, you don't know? I Yeah, uh, I don't... I mean... I yeah, know three that. Seconds. Yeah, I know that, but I don't know the movie it's from. Oh, I'm sorry. You're out of time. You got four correct. So let's go over the what ones are... you got wrong. So first of all, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. You win. <laughs> let's go over, because it, there were a lot of easy ones and there were some extremely hard yeah. ones. So, yeah, but hats off to my competitor. I think we both did fantastic. Yeah, oh, we, yeah, both so. did, we both did really These well. These are hard. Yeah. Right? So... No, you, you did great. Uh, you got HAL 9000s from 2001 Space Odyssey, okay. Dorian's from Back to the Future, R2-D2's from Star Wars, T-1000's from Terminator. Uh, great. So Eve is from Wally, and then Max is from Flight of the Navigator. Oh, and Robbie the Robot is from Forbidden Planet, which is an old, oh, old yeah. sci-fi movie. I've not done that. So. Yeah. And then, Susan, your answers were Data from Star Trek is mm-hmm. correct, Agent Smith from The Matrix, Optimus Prime from Transformers, the time-traveling phone booth is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yes. Johnny Five is from Short Circuit. Oh, I've never seen that. Oh, well. But I do know, like. I know what we're doing tonight. Something in my brain <laughs> that existed. I've just never seen it. Gort is from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay, that's a really old It's movie. my dad's favorite yeah. movie. <laughs> and ED-209 is from RoboCop. So, oh! Yeah. I didn't know he had an other name besides RoboCop. No, 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 not the cop. It's the other robot. Oh! Oh, okay. It's the guy who like, falls down the stairs. Oh, I would never have. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, great job. Hey, Noga, you merch, win. merch, merch. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, well, before we go, uh, is there anything else you want to plug? I mean, we want to make sure people see Deborah. He also see me cute, see yes. both of them. Me cute is on Peacock, available to friends. Just hire everybody, hire me for things. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yes. Perfect. I love that. Uh, but this is so lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, Noga, thank you very much. We had a pleasure talking to yeah. you tonight. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner, and me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSongs.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. It was exhausting and wonderful, and I would do it again, but after a lot of sleep. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)